0: Hi everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. My guest for this episode is D. Eric Harmon. Originally from Greenville, Mississippi, he was raised as Jehovah's Witness. At age 15, he concluded that his mother's religion was basically a fairy tale and began his journey into atheism. He attended Fisk University in Nashville, Tennessee, where he earned a degree in English and Drama and Speech. After receiving his master's degree from Vanderbilt University, Harmon began teaching English at the college level in 1988, which led him to teach composition courses that encouraged students to write about topics on oppression and inequality. Looking for documentaries that would explain the connection between U.S. slavery and Christianity but not finding any... Harman began honing his skills as a filmmaker and began producing his own films that tackled the issues of racism and religion, institutional racism, and white privilege. His films include Bondage and the Bible, a documentary that explores the links between U.S. slavery and Bible scriptures, The Science of Race, a documentary that examines the origins of scientific racism, and White Time, a three-part documentary that looks at institutional racism and the mechanisms of white privilege in the U.S., Harman currently teaches composition courses and courses on the Black experience at Century College in White Bear Lake, Minnesota. So welcome, Eric Harmon. I'm so glad you could join me today.
1: I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
0: You have this really interesting series of documentaries, and you have a story behind it. I would love to hear more about this. I asked you to fill out an agenda before the conversation, and one of the things you wanted to start with was to briefly discuss what led you away from being a Jehovah Witness into atheism.
1: Um, I was raised a Jehovah's Witness. I think my mom started studying with them when I was about six or seven. And I actually got baptized when I was 10. The reason why, of course, was because I wanted to please my mom. This was her religion. And we were taught that this was the truth, that we were right and everybody else was wrong. And we were going to be saved during Armageddon and all of that. But I guess what really did it for me was two things. I prayed every night to Jehovah for understanding because a lot of stuff didn't make sense. And so I was praying for understanding and that never came. Then the other thing I I started noticing in the kingdom hall, they don't call it a church, was that we were very strict and they preached that we were the righteous ones. We were the only ones following in the footsteps that Jehovah had laid out and that all the other Christians and all the other non-Christians were just bad people and on their way to to eternal damnation or whatever it is that they believe. But I started noticing that the leadership in the church, they weren't following these rules. They disfellowship you if you break the rules. Basically, they shun you. I saw elders who were actually committing sins, I guess you could call it, that should have gotten them kicked out. But they weren't. They were you know, treated with <laughs> kicked gloves. And so I, I started asking this one question, well, why do I believe all of this stuff? And the only answer I could come up with was because my mom told me that this was the truth. Well, then I asked, well, what if mom's not, not right? What if she's wrong? And so I sort of did a hard reset in my brain. I si- am I said, I'm just going to not believe in anything for a minute. And I'm going to go and research my mom's religion and Christianity. So I started reading all of these books about the origins of religion, the origins of Christianity. A- and the other thing, too, I used to read a lot of mythology. And one of my questions to Jehovah was, well, how, how is what's in the Bible any different than the stuff that's in mythology, because it seems a lot like, you know, Hercules and Samson got a lot in common. All that to say, I came to the conclusion that the God of the Bible was a work of fiction. And then later on, I, I read Dawkins' book. I thought his logic was sound. And I, I sort of concluded, yeah, he's probably right. That's, that's probably not a God. And so that's how I became an atheist.
0: And you have a documentary that actually deals with religion.
1: One of, one of the things I teach is a course called African-American Cultural Studies. And to me, you can't study how African-Americans were acculturated into the United States without talking about several things. And one of them is the Christian religion because it was used to justify our enslavement. Well, a lot of African-Americans, of course, still subscribe to Christianity. I think something like 75% of all African-American women are Christian. I mean, I wanted to show my students that in order to understand how we came to be so religious and so connected to christianity you have to look at the bible and you have to look at what the bible says about slavery and so I was looking for some documentaries and some articles about it. And lo and behold, there aren't there weren't any. <laughs> Not one with this, I mean, that specific premise that is there a connection between the slavery endorsed in the Bible and the way African-Americans process Christianity? And of course, there is a direct link, actually. It's, I think it's Ephesians 6, 5, Slaves Obey Your Masters. Those kinds of scriptures I highlighted in the film. Not only that, though, I showed that it was a a psychological conditioning of saying, if you're a good slave, then you get your reward in heaven. If you're a good slave, then you're going to be closer to God. Being a good slave is like being a good Christian. They were synonymous. Those things have filtered down throughout the centuries so that today, I think African-Americans are suffering from a form of PTSD, That religion was beaten into us, and that to not believe can mean your life. And to not believe meant that you were outside of the grace of God and that you had nothing else but you know, hell and damnation. So I think it's a Stockholm syndrome situation, it's PTSD. And so I wanted to do a film that was that was kind of balanced. I I really don't go all out the way I wanted to. I basically had Christians and non-believers talk about this notion. Does the Bible it was a simple question? Does the Bible support slavery? The mental gymnastics that people do to suggest that the Bible's type of slavery is different from the chattel slavery experienced by African-Americans in the United States. It's amazing. It's black and white, literally. It says you can own slaves forever, but people do all sorts of contortions to say, no, 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 that's not what's going on in the Bible. So I I wanted my students to actually see, well, I'm not going to tell you not to believe in your religion or your God. But to understand why we are so wedded to this religion, it has everything to do with what the Bible actually says about slavery and how white enslavers use that divine scripture, so to speak, to convince us that pretty much we deserve to be slaves. It's God's will, not my will, thy will. I've, I've heard that so many times from Black Christians. And this whole notion of not being worthy. Or of being born with original sin so that you're dirty somehow and you need the blood of Jesus to cleanse you, which I don't know how that would work because blood wouldn't seem that clean to me. But yeah, this whole notion that I am a servant, I am a slave, and it goes hand in hand, especially one part of the documentary. It's called Color Me God, which talks about how we're also spoon fed this notion of a white Jesus. And how so many African-Americans identify with Jesus being white. So, you know, just do the math. If The son of God is white. And Mary, you know, you see all the pictures of her. That's his mom. She's white. The God must be white. And therefore, if there's this underlying psychological conditioning that says white people are like God and we are not. And white people have to be better than us because they look like God, a white male God at that. <laughs>
0: so Yes, damn. I'm painfully aware of that part as well. <laughs>
1: I remember when I was in college, I did a poem. It was called Don't Matter, which basically has this character going around asking all of these religious leaders who are white about the ethnicity of God. And they all say, don't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But then when you, of course, challenge this notion that Jesus is not white or that he might be, quote unquote, black or brown, then, of course, it does matter. So obviously you couldn't conquer a whole group of brown people. Europeans couldn't go around the world conquering brown people. Showing up with a brown god, the god had to look like them, and to instill this this sense that God is on our side. Our God is superior. Obviously, superior to your gods because we we got cannons and you don't. We're, we're laying waste to your civilization. So obviously, God is on our side students come to our schools, our universities, and they really haven't engaged in any kind of reflection about the society that they live in. And they could be a diehard Christian, but don't know anything about their religion, or they could be a so-called diehard patriot, but don't know anything about the constitution. So a lot of people are flying blindly and they are reacting to tradition and to what's always happened before and they don't want to think deeply about that at all so in my classes I ask them what do you believe why do you believe it and what's the evidence for it and I'm not telling them you got to chuck your beliefs out the window but at least understand what they are what the origins of them are and then you can decide if you want to follow them or not The documentary that I did called White Time was, again, in response to a lack of material that, compreh- I wouldn't say comprehensively because you can't do it all, but in an overarching bullet point type style that shows from, say, 1619 or even prior to that, how race and racism operates in this country. A lot of African-Americans will look at our current society and they'll see a lot of hardship, a lot of things that are wrong in the Black community in terms of poverty, crime, lack of healthcare, things like that, you know, gang warfare, drug use, all of that. And so you'll look at that and you'll take a picture of it and you have to ask, well, why are we this way? Why are so many of us falling through the cracks? The answer is because of the way we got over here And systemic racism, white privilege, and all the other stuff. What I was trying to get students to see was there's a reason why these things are the way they are, and they're not by accident. We actually have in this country a set of people who actively engage in oppressing African Americans. But not just that, we have a whole, what they call the wheel of oppression, where people actively oppress other people. This narrative goes against the whole uh, meritocracy mythology that we have in this country, that if you just work hard, if you just put the effort in, you'll be successful, you'll make it. Instead of someone saying, well, actually, that could happen, but there are a lot of things that are structurally sewn into the fabric of this country that will oppress you and that will make it much harder for you to succeed. The playing field isn't even at all, not even close and people don't want to hear that. when I, And when I say people, I mean white people especially. They don't want to hear that because they don't want to hear that they have a leg up, that they have privilege, that they're, they're probably mediocre. But they are getting uh, stellar results despite not having all the skills that they should have to be where they are. That's a narrative that goes against the whole American dream. Work hard, you'll be successful. Instead of saying, well, you could work hard, but guess what? There's lots of oppression out there, lots of structural inequity out there, and you might get caught by it. And so don't be surprised if you don't get as far as you think you might get. Recently, I would say within the last maybe 10, 15 years, you know, with Peggy McIntosh and other people who are coming out and defining white privilege, uh, Robin DiAngelo with White Fragility, people are starting to name this stuff. Joyce DeGroy talks about post-traumatic slave syndrome. You even have people like Derrick Bell, who wrote Faces at the Bottom of the Well, who talks about critical race theory, all of that. It's starting to come out more, but for the most part, people don't want to hear that. That's why there's all this backlash against critical race theory. The narrative is America's great, and if you don't make it, it's your fault. So I was looking for documentaries that broke down the structure and was frank and honest about what society is we really live in. And I didn't find any. So I decided to make my own. And I did it with a sabbatical when I was on sabbatical. So I took off for a year. And the goal was to make a 50-minute documentary. I had so much material, I had to break it into three 50-minute documentaries. So I turned it into a series. It's called White Time. We deal with the, the, the news media, religion, the criminal justice system, and policing, education, the laws. Now I'm thinking not just for racism, especially white on Black racism for the most part, but there's all sorts of oppression out there. As a man, I have male privilege. So I started noticing the same arguments that we make to oppress women. Structurally, they're the same arguments that white people use to oppress uh, non-white people. So I started seeing this pattern over and over again. So I said, ah, somebody needs to break that down too. So my next documentary will be one that breaks down the playbook of oppression and how oppression works almost the same for the most part. They have the same methods across the board for the types of oppression. That's going to be my next project And I think I'm going to call it Oppression 101.
0: I definitely appreciate how you address sexist issues on your wall. I think that's one of the things that caught my attention was not just your post on racism, but how you would have these conversations, these long threads with other Black men that were very interesting. A lot of Black women on your wall would engage as well. Generally very happy that you were raising certain issues, asking certain questions It was extremely informational to me to see what would come out of those conversations. You were posting quite a lot of advocacy for women's issues, non-male issues. I appreciated seeing that on your wall.
1: Just like we say, you know, to white people, use your privilege. You know, men have to use our male privilege to call out other men and hold them accountable and to try to dismantle the system. It's very difficult, as I'm sure you know, as a white person trying to dismantle racism. All systems are hard because it's so normalized that as soon as you bring up the opposition to the oppression, you're met with an onslaught of people who argue that you're wrong, even that you're evil for having such a position. Uh, the backlash is enormous, That's all I can say.
0: I watched White Time a while ago when I first invited you on. And then I watched it again before talking to you tonight. As you said, it's a three-part series, but I want to let folks know it's not dry and it's not hard to watch. It's very easy to watch, in fact, and I find it very digestible. One of the things I like about it is the very clear timeline that you draw. You show the chronology in a very easy to understand way that connects the dots from slavery to the current time in this series. And I really think that it's a good tool to show those connections.
1: When I was a kid, I'm from Mississippi, and you know, I was always wondering, why do, why do white people own everything? And You know, we'll have a school that was 80 percent black, but all the teachers and the principals are all white. Why are they in control of everything? Without knowing the underlying pillars of white supremacy and racism, it's very easy to fall into self-hatred where you identify as someone who doesn't deserve to be in leadership or you don't deserve that job because your people have failed as a people. That message gets pumped into the Black community a lot. But when you look at, okay, we, we have reasons why when we were left to our own devices and we were thriving, white people would come in and burn our houses down and destroy our communities. So there's a reason why we are not as successful uh, in terms of participating fully in the society in terms of po- politics, economics, and all of that. It helped me to understand, okay, it's not that African-Americans can't succeed as a group, as a collective, Is that we have an oppressor. We need to come together to focus on solving our issues as a community, but also we can't just pretend that the oppressive nature of white supremacy doesn't exist. A lot of African-Americans do their kids a disservice when we pretend just like what we say, the American dream, just work hard and you'll be okay. We don't prepare African-American kids for a white supremacy world because we think it's going to darken their spirit or hamper them in some way. I think it's just the opposite. I remember when my daughter first got a job at a bank, she was the only African-American woman working there at that time. And it was a bank in Minnesota out in the uh, suburbs, pretty much all white. And so I told her, I said, listen, when you go to work, you're going to have to follow the rules more so than your white peers. If Becky can go to lunch and come back 10 minutes late and nobody says anything, don't think that you can do the same thing and nothing will happen. And she was like, oh, dad, you know, that's an that old school thinking, you know, this is the new generation we're, we've come a long way. And lo and behold, five of them went out to lunch and they were all 10 minutes late. Who was the only one that got written up? Uh, I remember also when I was at my school and we had a, um, a cohort of African-American and Latin-American boys, Hispanic boys, or I should say men they're over 20. They had a resume writing seminar. So a woman came in, white woman came in to basically teach them about how to write their resumes. And when she left, I would say, well, you know, she needs to include certain things. Like for instance, if you have a black sounding name and you can abbreviate the black sounding part of your name, do that. Tips like that white people really don't think about because they have white privilege and they don't have to. But I know that if you look at that documentary free economics, I think it's something like two to one or three, no, three to one. If you have a black sounding name, your, your resume goes into the garbage can. I think that what happens is that we don't prepare our children. We don't live in a world that acknowledges white supremacy. I'm not saying you, get, you go around thinking, I'm not going to succeed because of white supremacy. I say, go around thinking, hey, white supremacy might be around the corner. Let me be wary. Let me try to be proactive. Let me try to hone my skills so I can sort of look out for it and be prepared to deal with it instead of just teaching kids. but just love everybody and treat everyone for the content of their character, not the color of their skin. That's not reality. And white supremacy is real. White people actually actively do things to get Black people in trouble, as we can see with all the so-called Karens out there, you know, making these phone calls and calling the cops on people. They know what they're doing. I don't assume that all white people are racist, but I assume that all white people are on the spectrum of racism. It's just like I assume all men are on the spectrum of sexism. How could we not be? Society tells us that we're superior to women. Society tells white people they're superior to everybody else. So how can you not be infected in some way? Even though you you might have black friends or women in your family that you're nice to doesn't mean that as a member of society, you are exempt from the notions that add to the oppression of uh, women and minorities. that I wanna talk about in my next film in terms of oppression is oppression is always upheld by a playbook that keeps everything going. One of the things that is behind oppression Once you've wronged a group of people, that act of exploiting, of taking advantage of that group of people for a long period of time, it actually turns into fear of the very people you're victimizing. White people are more afraid of Black people than the other way around, even though it should be the other way around because, you know, look at the history. The fear, I think, that a lot of white people are feeling right now is a fear that their numbers are going to go away and they're going to become a quote-unquote racial minority within the country. That's what all of this is about. I mean, when Obama got elected, the, the grip on power to them seemed to be loosening. And they're so afraid that if they find themselves out of power, that they're going to receive the same treatment that they've been handing out to minorities for decades. When you oppress people, they become... Someone that you have to be afraid of because you're afraid they want their licks back. But this is what I tell my students all the time. I said, you know, white people really should just relax on that. Because even though we have been exploited, we've been mistreated for centuries in this country. One thing that white America has done correct in the point of view of maintaining white supremacy is teaching black people to love them. And black people love white people. I mean, I'm talking in generic terms. I don't know if you know about this, but there's this running theme or meme, I should say, in the Black community about what white person is invited to the cookout. Are you, are you familiar with that?
0: No, I've, I've seen things about the cookout. Okay. I think I posted I've... something recently about like not
1: getting invited to the. <laughs> so let me, let me break it down. So, so the, 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 the cookout is an intimate space for Black people. It's where we go and we gather in our backyards. We barbecue and it's almost like, you know, a religion with us. You know, you barbecue, who's going to make the mac and cheese? Who's going to, you know, bring the best pound cake? All of that. We come together and it's a celebratory event, but it's insular. Everybody just can't come to the cookout. You know, you got to be family, you got to be friends, be, you know, connected somehow to get that invite because know, grandmama ain't going to cook that pound cake just for anybody. So, When they say, well, this white person is so good that they could get invited to the cookout. It is to me an attempt for African-Americans to show white people, see, we, we love you. If you guys just act right, if you're cool with us, we're cool with you all. And you can come to the cookout and you'll be fine. You'll be an honored guest. See, it's the reverse. For instance, if you have an all-white church and a Black person shows up, I'm invited <laughs> to an all-white church. What's going to happen? Is he going to be, or is she going to be welcome? Maybe a little bit from some people, for the, but for the most part, if it's an all-white church, it's all white for a reason. And for the most part, there's going to be some pushback. But- If a white person comes to an all-Black church, it's like, oh, celebration is like the prodigal son returning. And they're going to with open arms, welcome that person. African-Americans have been trained to be European lovers. Look at this whole phenomena of African-American male rappers and their affinity, their love for Italian culture. Everything is Godfather this, you know, mafioso that, you know, they they imitate white Italians who culturally, historically, couldn't stand Black people. But we embrace them because the media trains us. Religion trains us. Schools train us that white people are the bomb and they got it going on and we should like them and we should try to be like them. So notion of respectability politics about if we just dress up, pull our pants up, put on a suit, speak correctly. That's all about showing white people that I'm worthy. I'm worthy of being treated like a human being. And when we look at our relationship with white people, it's always one of almost like parent child and wanting approval from white society so that we we can, you know, basically stop getting surveilled at department stores, stop being stopped by the police and shot. And we we don't want that treatment. So we got to prove to white people we're not like that. We're, We're one of the good ones. Just uh, treat us nice and we'll treat you nice and everything will be fine. So this whole fear that white people have that black people are going to come in with torches and burn them out of their homes like they did us, you know, in the 1920s, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen.
0: It kind of reminds me of something that I say sometimes. People should not have to be white to have value. And I say Mm -hmm. this sometimes about women. I'll get upset sometimes when I see somebody asserting certain things and I will say, I do not have to be a man to have value. The same culture that you're talking about that encourages a Black person to want to aspire to these white cultural icons, how to dress, how to act, Mm -hmm. how to speak. It's all about how white can the society make somebody. Because the closer you are to that, the more acceptable you are. Mm -hmm. And we get the same message. Right. We don't recognize it as white people because we are white. So when somebody's telling us that we're the bomb, we're just thinking people are the bomb because we're just people we don't see it as a racial message because well, to us, that, it, the, the
1: race is, is us. Right. Well, no, people are you guys. That is white people don't have a race. I mean, I, I've heard, I mean, I know they do, but I mean, we know race is a social construct, but right. You know, the default human being is a white person. That's it. And so when you are defined as humanity, I mean, that's a psychological bonus points. I mean, that's some capital that I can't even imagine what I, I, well, I can imagine because I'm a man. So I know what the psychological capital of being a man comes with. I know, I know that the things I can take for granted, the things, for instance, I was a single dad. Oh my God, you would have thought that I hung the moon and made it glow because, oh, you are a man and you're taking care of your kid all by yourself. When women do this all the time. That's why I want to break down the pressure because it it goes both ways. Because if you don't, you, you have blind spots. If you are a member of an oppressing society, you have blinders on. I never thought about like when my wife is always hunting for a parking space close to the door. I'm like, why can't we just park? Oh, I forgot. Women are afraid of men assaulting and raping them. So they want to be closest to safety. And and people don't put it that way. They don't say, oh, well, women are afraid, you know, at night because they don't want to be assaulted. By whom? By men. They're afraid of men who rape women. You know, that's what they're afraid of. It's like having dragons flying around burning down villages and nobody says the word dragons. Well, why are you coming in? Well, you know, it's hot outside. (laughs) Why is it hot? Because dragons are burning stuff down. Right. (laughs) But But we don't say that. We don't say white people are doing this or men are doing that or straight people are doing that or Christians are doing this to oppress other people. We don't name. That's the part of the oppression. You don't name it. You don't name the oppressors. They remain aloof and invisible. We have these passive verbs like women were raped instead of saying men raped women, that's the whole playbook. You minimize, you obfuscate, and you uh, you mystify the whole system and say, ah, I don't know why women are afraid to walk at night. Why can't women just do what they do, like when, what we men do, and just live our lives? Why can't Black people just invest in some capital and get a loan from the bank and start a business like I did? And, and a lot of it is, I get it. People only know what they know. But, you know, with the internet... <laughs> with a lot of new systems of delivering information, people don't really have a lot of excuses anymore for not knowing some of this stuff.
0: I wanted to touch on some of the points in the film White Time. One of the things that I found really interesting that I was not aware of were the number of prestigious companies and institutions that had profited off slave labor mm-hmm. that are still Prestigious and profitable today. So these are companies that rose to prosperity and rose to prominence literally on the backs of enslaved African American people during the days of institutionalized slavery that are where they are today because of that early boost they got from Mm -hmm. that institution. And so now they are hugely profitable and generally white owned and white dominated companies. And they're only there because they were able to build that capital in
1: the days during slavery. Nobody wants to talk about how money transfers from generation to generation. They don't want to talk about that. They they, they make it seem as if people are starting from zero with every generation and building up wealth as they go. And then the next generation starts all over. Instead of saying, oh, no, 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 no. Some people got a a big head start and they pass that money down one generation to the next. And that makes all the difference in the world about the income gap between, I think African Americans have like what, I can't remember exactly, but it's it's, it's a 10 to one gap, maybe $14,000 to $140,000 or something like that for the average white family. And then of course you still have laws that reinvigorate these gaps. Where, you know, the PPE loans that went to corporations mostly or people who are more apt to be able to fill those forms out correctly because they're already in the loop. I mean, just look at the fact that the Native Americans had this land and it was stolen from them. And all of us are sitting on it now. So if we go back in time, of course, yes, we can see that these barbaric notions got everyone started who's in power now for the most part. And most people today will say, well, that was a long time ago. And so let's not dwell on that. They act as if we just reset the clock at zero and everybody now can just go out and do a race for prosperity. But you kept the money. And you're keeping the money (laughs) and you keep on keeping the money and you do tax cuts so that you you can keep more of the money. So that's what I try to let people see. Like, look, there's a racket going on here. It's monopoly. (laughs) You know, it's that game. If you can't see how the money is transferred and kept in the hands of a few rich white families, of course, you know, a few ethnicities also are allowed to play the game, then you, you will understand why it is that we have the inequity that we have today and why it is that they can buy po- politicians, run corporations, and things never change. And that's the thing. It's like, I'm still benefiting
0: from it. How do I ask somebody who is still penalized from it to just
1: forget it? Because you're selfish. <laughs> that's why. That's how. You know, people <laughs> I, people I, I can not <laughs> I mean, And And that's, I think
0: that's what you're talking about, though. I think that is part of the fear with all of this CRT nonsense. And and by that, I mean the nonsense about the people that are freaking out over the idea that we're going to teach this in school. They're afraid, I think, that if people do wake up to this, they're going to feel a sense of responsibility. To me, it's far more likely that children in school, if they come to understand what's going on, will be more likely to feel empathetically than if you wait till they're in their 40s and try to hit them with it.
1: What's next if you teach CRT, which we're not, but what if you taught critical race theory in schools? What are you going to teach next? Oh, let's teach the history of the labor movement. <laughs> let's teach that. Let's teach about the downfalls of capitalism. Let's teach about you know if we if we let CRT into schools and we let these young white kids actually learn hey, not only is racism something that works against me because it divides and conquers, but I'm also getting screwed. And and I have more in common and more solidarity with a Black person who makes $30,000 a year like I do than I do with Bill Gates. When Martin Luther King was organizing the Poor People's Campaign, that was a multiracial approach to poverty in the United States. Once you start waking up the average white person— Who was working class, middle class, and they started seeing solidarity with people of color and saying, We're all getting hosed in one way or another. Yeah. I have white privilege. Yeah, I have a few things going for me under that banner, but it's, it's not worth it. The uh, things that white people gain from white privilege isn't worth the things that they lose by not banding together with other people of color to actually take on the establishment and reverse some of these inequities. I wasn't like 1% of the population owning something like 80% of all the money and stuff. No one thinks about that on a daily But they think about critical race theory, something that's not doing anything to them because it's not being taught.
0: Basically, it's been raised in order to slap down any sort of conversation about race. They're not worried about CRT. They don't know what it is. They now associate any conversation that has to do with racism or race or institutional racism with this overarching label of CRT that they are using as the dragon to slay just to kind of let folks know what is actually going on with that. For example, here in Texas, the talking point they're going to use is they're not banning conversations of race or racism in the classroom. What they're doing is removing it from the curriculum. So they will say, you can still teach it. It's just not required learning. Then what they do is they tell the teacher that in these courses where this could come up, you are required to post publicly for the parents to tell them what you're covering in class every <laughs> week or every month or whatever it is. You have to put your curriculum up to show them what it is you're teaching. Then they go out and they drum up the base till they're just frothing angry about CRT and this racism and you want me to hate white people and hate America. And that's what they're teaching my kid in school is to hate being white and to hate being American, and to hate the country, and now what they're basically saying to the teacher is, go ahead, talk about race in the classroom. (laughs) We dare you. Right, wow. And the teachers are afraid to teach it, and I don't blame them. I would be afraid to teach it too in this atmosphere of really violent threats, and not just threats, but actions. We have a lot of violent people freaking out over things like, you asked me to wear a mask and they come back with a gun and shoot a store clerk who's there making eight bucks an hour.
1: White America. See all of this unfolding, but for the most part as a group, they're not alarmed. I don't know why. I, I don't get it, but it, but I don't it is. Know. I don't know if they don't see the dominoes or
0: what. Right now we have something called For the People Act that would protect voting rights, that would make partisan gerrymandering illegal. And I don't know if people understand that partisan gerrymandering is not illegal, that SCOTUS at the federal level says this is fine as long as your state constitution allows it, it's not a problem. You can... Mm draw your districts to cut out Democrats if you want to, if Mm -hmm. to minimize their votes even more. The ID laws, you had a really interesting segment on voter ID laws. I went and looked at the article. It was written in 2015, I guess, when this was an issue in Alabama. But one Mm -hmm. of the things that I found interesting was that at the same time that Alabama was passing their voter ID laws for requiring photo ID to vote, they were closing their DMVs in Mm -hmm. majority Black districts. So they're closing down the government operation that hands out the IDs in Black districts while they're passing laws to say you have to have an ID to vote. And then in addition, they banned the use of photo IDs that were provided by the housing authorities in the same areas.
1: But they'll say, the Supreme Court said, well, that's race neutral. That's race neutral. We'll allow it.
0: the, The issue here, though, is that I keep seeing these posts on social media. So, for example, you have the Texas thing with the abortion issue. You have other issues that are affecting race, like, you know, the voter ID bills, and people are saying, we need to get out there and vote. We really need to make sure that we get out there and vote. We need to make sure to turn these states blue. I hope that when people in Texas see this crap happening, they are going to get out and vote blue. And I'm looking at this And I'm saying, okay, do you understand at the same time you're telling me to get the numbers to the polls to turn this crap around, you aren't pushing people like Manchin and Cinema oh, to pass that voter protection bill. So you want us to have one hand tied behind our back in Texas, but we're supposed to overcome the Republicans when they are going to redistrict this year and cut us down even worse. They're passing voter restriction regulations. They're cutting the numbers of people who can vote. And the legislation that can stop them is in the federal hands. And people are screaming at people in Texas. Why aren't you doing something about it?
1: Again, I I don't understand why it is that white people who are in power don't see this as a threat to them as well. I don't understand why the Democrats don't see if these voter suppression laws go up in every state and the gerrymandering continues, then they're going to be voted out of office too. I don't know if they're sold out like their donors are saying. Don't do anything about it. We'll take care of you when you get voted out. We'll the cushy sinecure somewhere, I don't know. But it's like, why won't you put pressure on mansion and cinema? Start saying we're going to run people against you. Start raising funds against them and say, you know, we're going to get you out of office. Which only that seems to be the only thing they care about. You know, why isn't Joe Biden going hardball on these two? so that we can get rid of the filibuster and basically bring the country back, right? Why can't we expand the court so that we can get the right wing, not not people who are in the court, you know, who are stripping women of their rights as we speak. Why don't they see this as something they need to do? I don't know. They tried to kill Nancy Pelosi and one of their own, Mike Pence. If they're willing to kill Mike Pence, they're willing to kill anybody. tell us that we live in a democracy and we don't not even close no we know this is
0: not a democracy i mean it never has been and that's that's also part of understanding how the government was set up i see so many people who want to explain how the senate is not a racist institution and how the the nation itself is not a racist institution even though you can go back to the constitution and show that when it was written it literally (laughs) endorsed slavery it it literally endorsed slavery. And then you have this Senate. Now the, the Senate was not set up to be racist. When the Senate was set up, black people couldn't even vote. So it wasn't an issue where they were trying to disenfranchise black voters. They were just trying to provide a system where white landed people had more power. Wealthy white people had more power than people that were centralized in cities who didn't have as much money. And now they've set that system up All you have to do then is once Black people have a vote, you just funnel them into the city system. You don't let them buy land. They don't live in landed areas. They don't have a lot of money and they are disenfranchised automatically so that it becomes now a racist mechanism in addition to a classist mechanism. And I've had people sit and tell me, no, 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 it's trying to make the system fair because you have these people that have a lot of land and there's not a lot of people in the state. And so they have to have their interests served. And so they get the same amount of votes in the Senate as every other state. I'm like, what you just described is completely unfair. You see the disconnect.
1: I don't know. They can't string thoughts together properly. If they, But I don't know. It's the oppression. It's like that's the narrative. And it's so old and so embedded that uh, when we start critiquing the system, I think people just automatically kick in with that script. Well, no, it's fair because uh, every state gets two senators and then the other one in the house is by proportion. So ah, uh, it's fair. No, no, it's not. It's not fair at all. It literally gives some people's votes more power. Of course it does. But I think they're so wedded to the narrative. It's almost like religion. You know, it's totally
0: a, like religion. Yeah. It's like you were saying how oppression has these patterns. And I think yeah. this, the indoctrination has patterns. And this is a pattern of indoctrination where I would sit and talk to somebody that was religious on the phone and they would be describing something completely horrendous. And I would Mm -hmm. be pointing out, this is completely horrendous. And they would be like, no, this is good. This is good. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Why? Because it is. Because my brain won't let me say that it's not good because my identity is so married to this idea that if I admit, no, this is not good, then who am I?
0: Okay, so here's an example. On my wall, I posted that Lincoln was a white supremacist and a racist Mm -hmm. that caused some controversy, which is interesting to me because you can look at Lincoln's statements on race. And it's Mm -hmm. super clear that he believes that the white race is superior. And he makes it very clear that he does not believe that black people are on par with white people. That is a white supremacist attitude. It's a racist attitude. People confuse the fact that he promoted abolition with the idea that he's not racist and he's not a white supremacist. And that's not true. He was a white supremacist racist who advocated abolition. So he's against slavery. He's against enslaving people. That mm -hmm. does not mean he doesn't
1: think that he's superior because he's white. Remember I said that, you know, Black people love white people. They love Lincoln. Even though Lerone Bennett did this book that basically exposed Lincoln for the racist that he was, the narrative is hard to kill. So it's like the people think Mother Teresa was such a great person. It's like, oh, you're a saint like Mother Teresa. When if you look at it, you know, she was a pretty bad person. Lincoln was a racist through and through. But because the narrative says he was a friend of Black people, he freed the slaves, which he didn't. The Emancipation Proclamation only freed the slaves that were in the territories that the Union didn't control. It'd be like us saying everybody in Afghanistan, all the women are free to do what they wanna do. Biden could say that it wouldn't matter because you don't control Afghanistan, but it's the narrative and people love their country. They love their religion and you better not say nothing bad about it. And I don't care what the facts are. It makes me feel good. And you're saying things that makes me feel bad. So no matter what your facts, no matter what your logic, I'm not going to listen. I'm not, I'm just going to, you know, tune it out. It it just gets me when I see African-Americans lauding Lincoln. I'm like, okay, yeah, he wasn't the worst president, but he was definitely a racist. And then they'll say, oh, well, that was back then. Everybody, no, 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 no. There are people who understood that this stuff was not only, you know, wrong, but also immoral. it's it's almost like apartheid it was very easy to get on the bandwagon to be against apartheid it was obvious it was blatant that doesn't mean that you think those african uh, people in south africa are your equal doesn't mean that white people wanted to see one of them at the dinner table married to their son or their daughter they compartmentalize and, and they don't understand their levels to white supremacy and racism just because you don't Check all the boxes doesn't mean that you're not a white supremacist.
0: When people say it was much more common back then, or they didn't have the information we had today, they're not really saying that he's not a white supremacist. They're just saying Mm -hmm. white supremacy was far more normalized and far more acute. It was more common. It was more overt. It was more out in the open. There were more people that identified with it. It's still white supremacy. You're not saying it's not white supremacy. You're just saying he was one of a lot more white supremacists who were
1: openly able to say it. When people will act like they can't connect the dots, I always bring it to them. You know, it's harder to do with white males because they don't have as many oppressions as other people. But for instance, I would say, okay, if you were a white female, white woman saying, well, you know, back then they had slavery it was more common. I'd say, well, it was very common also for men to beat their wives. You know, uh, you could beat a woman and nothing would happen. Do you think that those men were sexist? And white beaters. And they would probably say, yes. Okay, but just because it was normalized doesn't change the fact that it was wrong then. And it's wrong now. They're not saying that it's not
0: white supremacy. They're saying white supremacy was more common, more normalized. That's an interesting attempt to rebut the statement that Lincoln is a white supremacist to, to try to argue that
1: lots of other people were as well. Well, you're still not denying it. People have a narrative. They have a script. And when you go off script to them, they have to find a way to defend it. Even though it's hypocritical, even if it were a different scenario where they were the victims, they would see for, for sure that it's wrong and it shouldn't be defended. They will defend the indefensible because it's their team. I'm, I'm go team no matter what. So don't say anything bad about the founding fathers. Yes, they were slave owners, but so was you know, everybody else. Get over it. And that was years ago. Let's move on while I keep the money. <laughs> yeah.
0: And then everybody that signed on to the Constitution was signing on to slavery, was signing on to an agreement to advocate for slavery in some states. Yeah, yeah. There's just no way around it. I think the thing that's so irksome to me living in Texas is hearing these conservative narratives where the people in leadership on the GOP side especially will say this is just an aberration of American ideals, and it's like, no, this is not an aberration of American ideals. This was all the founders who signed the Constitution. This is not an aberration. This was the foundational document of the nation. It included slavery, and everybody that put their signature on that document agreed to it.
1: Even today, most liberal, well-intentioned whites don't really understand how deeply racist their fellow whites are. They're always shocked, you know, what happened at the Capitol. People are electing these people. Republicans are being sent to Congress, like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Bobart and all those. People are actually voting to put these people in office and they actually say the stuff they say out loud. It's not the bug, it's the feature. They're sending white supremacists to the Congress. I don't know why white America can't see Look, you guys have a cancer within your, your ranks and you need to take it seriously you think January 6th was the end all, it, it's just starting. They're not being held accountable. Look at the sentences they're getting for basically trying to overthrow the government. And they're getting fines and a few days in jail here or there. It's the inability of white people to hold other white people accountable And to see the start making evil in their fellow whites, they're not able to do that for some reason. Well, I think a part of it is that we're
0: looking in a mirror. Yeah. It reminds me of the section in White Time 2 where they're talking about the white saviors in media Mm -hmm. and someone makes the point. That whenever they portray the white person swooping in to make that connection and play the liaison who's going to work between the white and Black world to bring this Black community or Black person along, the film never really focuses on the white savior's contributions to the oppression. This white person that comes in to save people is coming in in from a vacuum instead of a culture where as a white person, they have, as we've been talking about, been benefiting off of generational oppression of the black people that they're coming to, quote, save. So if I want to call out the racist, I've got to
1: be willing to call out myself. Yeah, just like me as a man, even though I'm I'm an African-American man, I still enjoy a lot of privilege that I have to keep reminding myself of. It's a work in progress. You never recover from being a part of an oppressive group. You always have to check yourself. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. You know, because it's, it's programmed in. You have to constantly fight your programming. And most people aren't willing to do that or aren't willing to even see that there's a program that they need to fight.
0: Yeah, it reminds me of a meme that I keep handy. I use it a lot on Twitter and sometimes on Facebook. It's an image of an angry, screaming woman. And the caption says something like, if I crap on other women with you, then will you treat me like I have value? Right. And I think this yeah. is what you're talking about is the idea of sort of not even seeing the
1: oppression. Well, it's like the patriarchal bargain. It's the same thing as the, the Black conservatives If I dress nicely, I speak articulately, if I date all the right white women and white men, and if I do all these things, will you accept me as a human being? It's not about just having value. Will you accept my humanity? People just want to be treated like the majority of white people are treated. They want the benefit of the doubt. They want the public trust. That's it. We don't have to prove that we're human before you decide that we might be human.
0: But all the metrics for success are set by particular demographics and all the rest of us are supposed to become more of that demographic and that demographic's values and goals and aspirations in order to count, which is completely absurd because it's just an arbitrary set of goals and values and attributes that none of us should have to adhere to or align with or agree to in order to be valued and to be considered human. And this well, is part of what makes me angry is that there was only one demographic that set up this system and it continues
1: to benefit that demographic mostly. But We have allowed sociopaths to dictate the terms of our society. For the most part, they're sociopaths. Nobody really calls them out on it. All of these CEOs, these politicians who really don't care about human beings and they're selfish and all they care about is power because we're gaslit all the time, we're convinced, well, if we just let that person, if we just please that person, or if we just follow their rules, then we'll be safe and we'll be human. Some Sociopaths don't work that way. I
0: did hear somebody give a really good example of it. I, I think it was in a forum that I'm in that's led by Black women they were talking about how being black and being a woman, so they're divorced from the power structure in a much more severe way than a white woman or a black man. One other documentary that you have posted, which is The Science of Race. Mm-hmm. It's a really interesting documentary on the history of race in science or pseudoscience.
1: The big three in terms of how oppression gets supported, especially racism, was religion, science, and uh, the law. I would lecture about it. So the first one I did was about religion. So, the next one I tackled was how science upholds racism. If you get some scientists together who just declare that white people are superior and that black people and non white people are inferior, you can't argue with that. The science has spoken. So, I wanted to do a film about that. I found the different uh, diseases that they came up with to justify slavery. One of them was dreptomania. D-R-A-P-E-P-O-M-A-N-I-A, drapetomania. Samuel Cartwright came up with this one. So drapetomania is the mental disease that causes slaves to want to run away. Basically, if you are in slavery and you run away, that was classified as a mental illness. And the cure was to beat you and to put you to work.
0: I had actually heard of that one. So there might be folks (laughs) who've heard that one, but there was another one that I had Uh, not heard
1: of. This is Ethiopica. Dysthesia evioca was a disease that made black people not want to work. It made them
0: lazy. What was funny though was it, I guess in hindsight, with it being so long ago, the idea that people actually took this seriously is not funny. But they they had decided that it made you lazy if you were a black person. So it seemed to only afflict black people. Of course. And you were lazy. If you were enslaved, but it was worse if you were free and black, then you yes. really seemed to not be working as hard, which right. meant there had to be something wrong with you if you weren't working as hard as an enslaved black person when you were freed.
1: Right. Like the black stereotype called Zip Coon. Your thesis is that black people are inferior, so they belong in slavery. So if you have Blacks who are not in slavery and they're thriving and they're going about their day and working and doing what everybody else does, you got to come up with a narrative that fights against that. So you exaggerate the free Blacks and you call them zip coon and you dress them up as a dandy and they mispronounce words. They are basically a, a buffoon. You, you put this in a vaudeville show and you repeat it. And when people were watching the Jeffersons in the 70s, they didn't know that George Jefferson was basically, at that time, the modern day version of a zip coon because he mispronounced words. He was the racist. You, you can't give African-Americans money and freedom. That's antithetical to what they're designed to do. So you have to come up with these stories and narratives to push against that. They would have these things called negritude, saying that African-Americans couldn't feel. And this is, of course, true today in the, in the medical field. They said that we couldn't feel pain as much as white people, and that we didn't have emotions or mm-hmm. feelings like white people. We can stand the sun and the heat much more so, and you know, we were more sturdy in working hard. So that was negative. Today, the reason why African Americans haven't suffered mostly from the opioid crisis is that white doctors won't give us pain pills because they don't think we need them because we, we can stand the pain, or they don't empathize with our pain, or they think we're just there faking our pain, trying to get opioids. So they don't give African-Americans opioids. So that's why we've pretty much escaped the whole opioid epidemic. And a lot of us don't have health insurance where we could get it anyway.
0: Yeah, I did find that the segment that was in the science of race about modern medicine and some of the issues there with the racial disparity,
1: that was very interesting. The whole thing about excited delirium, uh, medical term that uh, some uh, coroners were starting to use or uh, uh, medical examiners were using, where basically it says that you only die of excited delirium when you're in police custody, where your heart gets to racing so much or you're on drugs or something that you basically scare yourself to death and you're so excited that you die in police custody. It's not the police fault. It's not the fault that they, they're beating you and that they're hog tying you and putting you in restraints that restrict your breathing. It's you. It's your fault. So when George Floyd, when his killer Derek Chauvin was on trial, his lawyer tried to use the whole excited delirium argument as a reason why George Floyd died. They come up with these theories that are still there. We also talked about the bell curve, which was I think what, was in the nineties, and how that book retread all these old stereotypes. I mean, the bell curve said stuff like that African Americans are biologically predetermined to get traffic tickets more so than white people, you know, that were stupid, more lazy, all all the same stereotypes. You should have seen how the bell curve was well received by the media and mainstream media at that they were talking about the book and had people on. It forced the narrative that black people are not worthy, that they are scientifically unfit and they deserve everything they get.
0: The other thing I found interesting in that particular documentary was the survey, I guess, the informal survey with folks asking them, what is race? Can they explain race? (laughs) And everyone had a different answer. So nobody really could say what it was. It reminded me a little bit of the question of gender. It's one of those things everyone thinks they know what it is until you start asking people and then nobody knows what it is.
1: And the other one is when I was asking white people, why do you call yourself Caucasian? And I ask that every year in my classes, and most white people have no clue. I, I tell them the fact that your name for yourself holds no meaning for you. That it's just a name that you don't even have to think about. That shows that white people have a different relationship with race than any other group. It's extremely
0: elusive and it's also extremely flexible and extremely useful if your aspirations are political division there was something you were talking about earlier that reminded me of a cartoon that I saw recently. It was when you were talking about um, the division that's caused between black citizens and poor white citizens, or at least struggling white citizens and how they don't Mm -hmm. see the solidarity because of the division of race that is promoted between them. Mm -hmm. It's a cartoon and it's a King sitting on top of a castle with a advisor And then in front of them, down below them, are these huge masses of people with torches and pitchforks, Mm -hmm. clearly coming to storm the castle. And the advisor says, don't worry, you don't have to fight them. You just have to convince the people with the pitchforks that the people with the torches are coming to take their pitchforks. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah, that's gold. That's the key right there, that oppression works in a way that the people who benefit from the oppression don't have to do the fighting. They just set up the narrative, and they reward those who participate in the narrative, and it'll take care of itself. And what's going to stop us from saying, enough of all these billionaires, enough of all these politicians, enough of all these corporations doing all the, the dirt that they do, we outnumber them because the narrative is stuck in our brains. We either think we can't do anything because we're powerless or we think we shouldn't do anything because that's the way it is and the way it should be. And one thing I would like to say to anybody listening is that I hate it when people understand their oppression, but don't want to understand the oppression of others. Don't just be about your oppression. That's it. And then go around and join in on the oppression of other people. I mean, I know it's cliche, but Martin Luther King says, you know, paraphrase, oppression anywhere is oppression everywhere. And I that's how I think people need to start thinking. Don't just say, I'm going to fight because I'm a woman. I'm going to fight for women's rights. But the hell with gay rights or poor people or race or anything like that. Or if you're a Black man, like, you know, we love talk about, oh, racism against black men, but we we'll go around doing bad things to women and oppress we'll gays and, and the like. We need to have an approach that says, let's stop all oppression. Actually listen to what people are saying, how they feel about their oppression, what it is that you are doing to contribute to it and try to stop it. That's it. That's all I ask people to do.
0: And hopefully they'll do it. I just want to tell you, thank you for coming on. I really like the documentaries. I think they're informative. I think they're easy to watch. They're easy to digest. I suggest that people go out and look them up. We will include a link to them in the description so that folks can go and find them. Yeah, and all, you, all, my,
1: all my documentaries are free to watch. I, you know, I sold some of them back in the day, but I always make them free to institutions because I believe knowledge should be free.
0: And with that, I'm going to let you go, get back whatever. to whatever you're doing today, and I will see you on the internet.
1: All
0: right. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That's it for this episode of At Home In My Head. Exploring Life in the Cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.